everyone. Welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. As always, brought to you by you with your support on patreon.com slash adherentapologetics. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Richard Playford. Um, he's a re- lecturer of religious studies and the program lead for the Bachelors of Arts in Theology, Religion, and Ethics, um, and also for the Bachelors of Arts in Theology and Religious Studies at St. Mary's University. He's a philosopher who's done a lot of work in ethics, bioethics, metaphysics, and philosophy of religion. So, Richard, you're all over the map. Um, thank you. Welcome for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited for this. We're going to be talking about um, Thomistic teleological arguments, which is can sound like a mouthful, but it's a lot of fun. I'm really excited for this. Um, you have a presentation that you're going to kind of walk us through, and then we're going to talk about some objections. And if there's live questions, we'll take those at the end. Before that, we do that, can you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do first? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, you've already described my, my, uh, my job. Um, but I, in terms of my qualifications, I've got a, a bachelor's in uh, philosophy with ancient history from the University of Exeter, uh, in philosophy from the University of Birmingham, and then I did my PhD at the University of Reading under, uh, I had two supervisors, one of them uh, is a guy called Professor David Oderberg, who's a very famous Catholic philosopher, and then the other guy was, was called uh, Professor Philip Jackson Lake, who it isn't particularly religious, but that was on uh, natural law theory, which is the uh, ethical theory that has its origins in Aristotle and Aquinas and is very popular in both the Anglican or I think I think you guys would call them Episcopalian. Um, I think I think Anglican would be fair still. Um, OK, in the in the Anglican and then particularly Catholic churches. Um, so that was what my background was in. And then I got my job at St. Mary's and one of the things they were keen for me to do was bits of uh, world religions, all sorts of this, that and the other. So I've got a sort of side interest in Buddhism and Taoism, Chinese philosophy, uh, a little bit of Islam. So yeah, I kind of do, I kind of drift around and do lots of lots of different things, yeah. Um, in terms of my own uh, beliefs, uh, I'm, I guess I should describe myself as a Catholic now. Um, I was sort of raised in a agnostic sort of home, like a sympathetic to religion, but not really believers. And then I became an evangelical when I was about 21. And then gradually, due to my own personal studies and this, that and the other, eventually moved into an Anglican church, an Anglo-Catholic church. And then and now, now I'm, I'm entering the primarily view myself as a Christian in that sense, big believer in ecumenism and that sort, of, that sort of thing. Christian, Christian first, and then whatever denomination second. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and then one of the things that I'm keen to sort of share with your viewers is some. Uh, sometimes they're called design arguments. Sometimes they're called teleological arguments. But there's, as we'll see, there's two different types of design or teleological argument, and one of them I think is underrepresented and misunderstood introduce the, uh, the viewer to those and to uh, encourage them to explore them as as extra strings to their bow so to speak mm-hmm. yeah i'm really looking forward to this um so what we'll do now is we'll kind of jump in i know you have some slides prepared to kind of walk through like the Thomistic teleological argument and things like that so you're welcome to share your screen whenever you're ready um we can kind of walk through that um so Perfect. awesome that's what we'll do. Um, so Richard has some slides prepared. It should be a lot of fun. We're going to be talking about um, these, this argument 
a different uh, it's interesting because I, I love looking at your slides just because there's many different arguments from design um which is presenting a specific kind uh there we go um so yeah can you, you can see that yeah we can see it and everyone um watching as well should be so yeah whenever you're ready okay perfect um so I, I thought i'd do it like this this is often how i teach some of my lectures and i thought it was a good way of uh, breaking it down in a, in a clear way. Maybe it's not quite as dynamic and flowing as some of them, the other interviews you've done, but hopefully it will be interesting enough. So as, as I sort of gestured to before, we're looking at teleological arguments. And most of you out there will be familiar with design arguments slash teleological arguments. And you'll be familiar with what I like to call Paley-esque design arguments, which are design arguments that have their origin in the thinker, uh, Paley, William Paley. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about those briefly, but more so that I can distinguish between those sorts and the other sort that aren't discussed so often. I'm gonna talk about Paley. I'm gonna look at two modern, shall we say, descendants of his argument, and then I'm gonna talk about arguments based on regularity. As I've said, design arguments are a family of arguments, sometimes called teleological arguments, and whilst sort of cosmological arguments, alarm cosmological arguments, contingency arguments, take the existence of the world and use this to argue for the existence of God. Design arguments take some particular feature of the world and use this to argue for the existence of God. So that's what they all have in common. And broadly, they can be subdivided into two main categories, which we might call arguments from purpose and arguments from regularity. And you'll be familiar with arguments from purpose, but I want to draw your attention to arguments from regularity. And we're going to look at a few different examples from each group. Do, do let me know if I'm going too fast or anything. No, I think you're at a great pace, so, yeah. Okay. The great, great thing about this sort of format, of course, is if anybody wants to pause to <laughs> do that, then they can, so I don't need to worry yeah. too much. Normally when I'm teaching, everybody's taking notes, and I have a tendency to speak a bit too fast. <laughs> you're all good. Don't worry about it. And if you go too fast, I'll be sure to let you know. Um, so, yeah. Perfect. Okay. Some design arguments begin by noting that the world at least appears to display purpose. And in general, we say that something fulfills a purpose when it acts or works towards some particular end. So watches, for example, are clearly supposed to help people work out what the time is. Cars is another example are clearly supposed to help people travel from place to place quickly. How do we know this is what they're supposed to do? In general, we observe that they are arranged in a complicated way, best explained by the actions of an intelligent agent in order to achieve some particular outcome. I think, though, there are some interesting questions. If aliens came to Earth and there weren't any humans around, just our technology, would they be able to work out what was and wasn't a human artifact and what was and wasn't designed, what was and wasn't the purpose? I think that does raise some interesting questions. Because if it's difficult for us to work out what human uh, artifacts are for, and raises interesting question about whether we can work out what biological artifacts or, or biological creatures or sort of thing. Anyway, it's amusing we can bat those around later on. So William Paley is one of the most famous originators of this style of argument, 1743 to 1805, an English clergyman, Christian apologist and philosopher. And in his book, Natural Theology, or Evidences of the Existence and Attributes of the Deity, Paley puts forward, a design argument for the existence of God. And it's often called the watchmaker analogy. But this is the key passage in the book. 
In crossing a heath, suppose I pitched my foot against a stone and were asked how the stone came to be there. I might possibly answer that for anything I knew to the contrary, it had lain there forever, nor would it perhaps be very easy to show the absurdity of this answer. But suppose I had found a watch upon the ground and it should be inquired how the watch happened to be in that place. I should hardly think of the answer I had given before, that for anything I knew the watch might have always been there. There must have existed at some time and at some place or other an artificer or artificers who formed the watch for the purpose which we find it actually to answer, who comprehended its construction and designed its use. Every indication of contrivance, every manifestation of design existed in the watch, exists in the work of nature, with the difference on the side of nature of being greater or more, and that in a degree which exceeds all computation. So breaking it down a little bit, the argument seems to be that the parts of a watch are obviously put together to achieve a particular purpose. So when he writes, when we come to inspect the watch, we perceive what we could not discover in the stone, that its several parts are framed and put together for a purpose. They are so formed and adjusted as to produce motion. And that motion so regulated as to point out the hour of the day. And because of this, we can deduce that the watch must have been designed. And that therefore, there must have been a designer. Bailey then argues that the universe more so than the watch, also displays evidence of being put together for a particular purpose. Therefore, if we can infer the existence of a designer in the case of a watch, we can infer the existence of a designer in the case of the universe. Further, given the size and complexity of the universe, this designer must be vastly more intelligent and powerful than any human designer, i.e. this designer must be God or certainly a God-like being. And the rest of his book then develops and expands upon this idea and he gives various examples and he considers various sort of counterexamples and so on and so forth. So that's the general strategy that he uses. Does that all make sense? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm tracking with you. So I, I know that your, the viewers have a variety of different perspectives on evolution and I, I say I'm not committing to any perspective on it here. I'm just telling you what the sort of state of play in contemporary academia is and then thinking about some apologetic strategies that we could adopt in response to that. But Bailey's design argument in its completely original form has largely been abandoned due to the development of the theory of evolution. So many of his examples of apparent design involve appeals to biological systems. As one example, he argues that the eye is like a telescope. Telescopes require designers, therefore, so he says, the eye must require a designer. Now, I'm not a biologist, so I won't offer an in-depth explanation of evolution, but I'll assume you're all familiar with the basic idea, descent with modification, one species slowly transforming into other species in response to evolutionary pressures and so on. So for the sake of argument, let's grant that evolution is true. But for my own, if I'll speak for myself here, for my own part, I, I don't see a incompatibility between evolution and Christianity and so on and so forth. So for me, I'm very pleased to take this option. But it seems to me that even if you, you don't accept evolution, this is still a good strategy uh, to adopt. Why? Well, the vast majority of scientists believe in the theory of evolution. And if we can grant the theory of evolution and can still float a modified version of Paley's argument, then this would seem to be a very powerful response as we'd have metaphorically rug out from underneath our intellectual opponents by accepting their premises but rejecting their conclusion. It seems to me this is a really good 
approach to take, regardless of your view on evolution. If your opponent's argument is evolution, therefore not Christianity, or evolution, therefore not God, and you can go evolution but God, you've kind of got them, you've got them, you know, got them against a the wall there. Let's grant that the theory of evolution does provide a plausible explanation for why living creatures have intricate complex mechanisms perfectly adapted to their environment. As a result, it looks like we can explain their apparent goal-directedness without needing to postulate a designer. Natural selection and other natural processes can explain all the weird and wonderful phenomena and features we encounter in living organisms. And so we don't need to postulate God in order to explain them. So just a little quote from Charles Darwin to kind of illustrate this thinking. Although I did not think much about the existence of a personal God until a considerably later period of my life, I will here give the vague conclusions to which I have been driven. The old argument of design in nature as given by Paley, which formerly seemed to me so conclusive, fails now that the law of natural selection has been discovered. We can no longer argue that, for instance, the beautiful hinge of a bivalve shell must have been made by an intelligent being like the hinge of a door by man. There seems to be no more design in the variability of organic beings and in the action of natural selection than in the course which the wind blows. Everything in nature is the result of fixed laws. And that's Charles Darwin. And you can see him directly engaging with Paley there. And an important thing to note, as again from an apologetic perspective, even if you grant all of this to your opponent, none of that disproves the existence of God. Darwin himself thought that the theory of evolution and the existence of God were compatible. But what it does do, which is bad from our perspective, is undermine Paley's design argument for the existence of God. And then potentially it might undermine certain theological doctrines about the precise method by which God created the world, such as six-day creationism. But that's a sort of secondary issue. So just, again, to Darwin himself accepted this, it can hardly be supposed that a false theory would explain in so satisfactory a manner, as does the theory of natural selection, the several large classes of facts above specified. So his point is that he thinks evolution is true because of the explanatory scope that the theory has. It has recently been objected that this is an unsafe method of arguing, but it is a method used in judging of the common events of life and has often been used by the greatest natural philosophers, i.e. scientists. I see no good reason why the views given in this volume should shock the religious feelings of anyone. It is satisfactory as showing how transient such impressions are to remember that the greatest discovery ever made by man, namely the law of the attraction of gravity, was also attacked by Leibniz, a subversive of natural and inferentially of revealed religion. A celebrated author and divine has written to me that he has gradually learned to see that it is just as noble a conception of the deity to believe that he created a few original forms capable of self-development into other and needful forms as to believe that he required a fresh act of creation to supply the voids caused by excuse me, sorry, I need to move this, actions of his laws. And so that, sh that shows in, if anybody ever holds up evolution as a, a supposedly knockdown argument against the existence of God, Darwin himself would have rejected that. And Darwin himself, the, the uh, what is he called, celebrated author and divine. Charles Darwin is talking about a friend of his who was a vicar in, in the Anglican church who felt that evolution was compatible with his Christianity.
And it would have been interesting if, I mean, Charles Darwin was an, was an old chap by the time he died. It would have been interesting to see if he had lived longer, whether he might have warmed gradually more and more to religious belief. Anyway, make of evolution what you will and have those debates and, you know, they're very interesting and I'll, I'll you know, happily read about them and learn about them and so on and so forth. I'm happy to uh, adopt any perspective. But in the contemporary literature, many philosophers, theologians, and scientists think that because of the theory of evolution, Bailey's design argument lacks the weight it once had. But there are two modern design arguments based on purpose that perhaps, and I think they probably do, uh, avoid these objections. And so here I'm, I'm kind of, I'm gonna gesture towards them and then the uh, watchers, the viewers can go and explore them for themselves. I definitely have a nice soft spot for the cosmic fine-tuning argument. The argument from irreducible complexity worries me for some reasons that perhaps we can, we can go into if you want, but it's still a very interesting argument. So cosmic fine-tuning argument and the argument from irreducible complexity, what they both have in common is that they try to identify a feature of the universe which cannot be explained by either evolution or chance. Thus, so they argue, the only remaining explanation is that of design, which requires a designer. They both try to avoid explanations which appeal to chance by applying scientifically verifiable numbers to the theory, i.e. they show mathematically that chance is an implausible explanation of the various phenomena. The cosmic fine-tuning argument tries to avoid explanations based on evolution by appealing to purely physical rather than biological phenomena. The theory of evolution is obviously a biological theory, and so this strategy tries to sort of sidestep that whole objection. And the numbers that, that some of these guys have worked out are absolutely fantastic. You know, looking at the precise uh, strength of gravity between different atoms and things like that, and calculating that if they were off by even a tiny, tiny little fraction, you know, the whole of the universe would be the, the size of a walnut or would it be so spread out that life would be impossible. I, and you know, the, the numbers are just mind-boggling. I, I quite like a cosmic fine-tuning argument. The argument from irreducible complexity argues that certain biological features are irreducibly complex, and so they cannot be explained by the theory of evolution. And so often they'll look at little organelles, things within cells, and they'll say that some of them are structured in such a way that they can't have been built from simpler structures themselves so they must have sort of come into existence fully formed and that's not going to ha happen by chance because um, obviously evolution would suggest that life started off simple and got gradually more and more complicated if you're interested and are well disposed towards Paley's argument and absolutely check out those arguments for yourself there's plenty of resources available on the internet easy to find or I know we're having some questions at the end I'm happy to make uh, some suggestions off the top of my head if you want me to yeah I, i'll just say i know there's some people um skeptics and stuff listening um feel free to push back we will answer questions i think we're about halfway through the slides here um so we'll open it to objections i drew up or we'll put questions in super chats first um so feel free to put those but i'll give it back to you richard okay sounds good so this second class of argument i am fairly confident that a decent number of the viewers won't have heard of these sorts of arguments um, or, if you have heard of them, they have been falsely equated with the first sort. So the second sort of argument are design arguments based on regularity. 
And the most prominent historical argument for the existence of God based on regularity is Aquinas's fifth way. And I'm going to talk you through that. We're going to have to go into a little bit of Aristotelian metaphysics, which is um, a little bit technical. Hopefully I've kind of broken, I'm, I'm sort of you know wary that there's time limits and this, that and the other. I don't want to go into too much unnecessary detail. So I've tried to sort of simplify it and just to give you the gist. I'm then also going to point to a more modern version that has the same basic strategy, but doesn't necessarily require a commitment or a detailed understanding of Aristotelian metaphysics. So that's why I'm looking at two different versions. And if you want to look at the original, go and study Aquinas. And again, I can make some reading suggestions. Or if you want to look at a more uh, modern version, which I think is a bit easier to get your head around than Richard Swinburne's version is a good one. Okay, so starting with Aquinas, I'll read out the argument and then I'll break it down. So don't worry. So the fifth way, sometimes called the teleological argument, the fifth way is taken from the governance of the world. We see that things which lack intelligence as natural bodies act for an end. And this is evident from their acting always or nearly always in the same way so as to obtain the best result. Hence it is plain that not fortuitously, but designedly do they achieve their end. Now whatever lacks intelligence cannot move towards an end unless it be directed by some being endowed with knowledge and intelligence, as the arrow shot to its mark by the archer. Therefore, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end, and this being we call God. Now, I've seen people like Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion assume that this is just Paley's argument in a different form. It's not, it's very different. To get a head around it, we're going to need to do a very brief introduction to what are called the four causes. Now, these are not causes in the way that we would think of them. They're four principles, four ways of understanding an object, which uh, conceptual ways of understanding an object, which have their origins in Aristotle and were then developed by Aquinas and other scholastic thinkers throughout the ages. And they're the formal cause, the material cause, the efficient cause, and the final cause. But all that that's saying is when we examine an object, in order to understand everything there is to know about it, we need to ask and answer these four questions. And there'll be four principles in response to each of those questions. The first is the what it is. So it has to be something in particular. If it's a material object, it's going to have to be made of something, i.e. matter. It's going to have to have come from somewhere, or at least most things will. For you, that's your parents, the chair that I'm sitting on, that would be made in a, in a factory by a carpenter or what have you. And then the final cause, the what it does. So every time you try to understand something, you need to ask yourself these four questions and there'll be four answers to them. What it is, what it's made of, where it comes from and what it does. Now, for me, when I got my head around the four causes, I thought it was so, so obvious it didn't need saying. But of course, I would say the beauty of Aristotle, of Aristotle's thought, is that he was the first person to carefully demarcate these four different aspects of a thing. The two that we need for this argument are the formal cause, the what it is, and the final cause, sometimes called an end, which is the what it does. A thing may have more than one end. So what are ends according to the Aristotelian Thomistic metaphysical schema? 
According to Aristotle and Aquinas, the thing's end are the end states towards which a thing's characteristic behaviors point. For example, the ends of an acorn are to grow roots, a trunk, branches, leaves, and eventually to produce more acorns, i.e. to become a mature oak tree. For us, they might be things such as engaging in community, uh, exercising our cognitive faculties, and having families of our own, so on and so forth. For uh, a red rubber ball, it might be to bounce and to roll downhill. And some of those ends will be intrinsic to the thing itself. So it's part of an acorn that it will grow a root, trunks, branches, leaves, and so on and so forth. And some of them will be extrinsically added. So the purpose of a red rubber ball is to bounce because we want it to bounce. But that's understood in a different register to the fact that an acorn should grow roots, a trunk, branches, leaves. One of them is intrinsic to the object in question. One of them are extrinsic. And we're interested in the intrinsic ones. Does that make sense, Zach? Yeah, I think I'm tracking with you. Mm -hmm. So for our purposes, we can simply understand ends to be the way or ways a thing's characteristically behaves. And according to Aristotle, a thing's ends are determined by and flow from its form. The what it is. So because it's an acorn, it will do those things. Because he's a human being, he will do those things. And for Aristotle, the two are separate. There's the form, that kind of is, and then the ends flow out of it. Aquinas rejects this view. He would argue that a thing's form simply is its collected ends. I, there's nothing to form other than being a collection of ends. This is the sort of thing where I, if I had more time, I would really sort of spell this out and look at why Aristotle views it in the way that he does and Aquinas views it in the way that he does. I'll just give you the gist, and that's why I'll introduce you to Swinburne's version, but I can make some reading suggestions if you're interested. So for Aquinas, a thing's form simply is its collected ends. So if a thing's ends are determined by and flow from its form, the question of why inanimate objects behave in a regular law-like manner, i.e. why they consistently fulfill their end, is easily explained. It's because of their form. But if a thing's form simply is a series of ends, then explaining why inanimate objects behave in a regular law-like manner, i.e. why they consistently fulfill their ends, becomes much harder to explain. So to give an a, a different example, for example, if we say, why does water at sea level, you know, pure water at sea level freeze at zero degrees centigrade? Well, if it, we could say that the reason it does that is that's part of what it means to be water. And if, according to Aristotle, that's fine. You've, you've, you've answered, why does it do this? By appealing to what it is. But according to Aquinas, the what it is simply is a collection of the what it does. And so, what you, so all that you've done there is explain what it does by appealing ultimately to what it does. So it becomes uninformative. So this is because when we ask why do inanimate objects behave in a regular law-like manner, what we're really asking is why do inanimate objects consistently fulfill their end? If we then appeal to their form and their form simply is a series of ends, then we have tried to explain why inanimate objects consistently fulfill their ends by saying that they do this because of their ends, which seems uninformative. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think I'm tracking with you still. Um, so you're yeah. good. 
And if you if you want a marking for like time, I was thinking maybe saving the last fifteen minutes for Q and A. Um, so you go to like the forty five minute mark, I guess, with your presentation, which I think because you don't have too many slides left, shouldn't be too much of an issue. Um, assuming that's fine with you, I don't want to rush you, of course. Oh yeah, no, no, I think that should be fine. Yeah, yeah, splendid. And so we then need another explanation, and the best explanation is that of intelligence. So sentient beings direct their behavior towards certain ends using their intellect. The archer, for example, aims his arrows at his target. So intelligence is capable of directing things towards certain ends. For sentient creatures, they direct themselves towards their ends. The question now becomes what directs inanimate objects towards their ends? Well, it needs to be an intelligence, and it needs to be capable of directing all the inanimate objects in the universe, rocks, water, atoms, fire, and so on, towards their various ends. And the only intelligence that could do this, according to Aquinas, is God. And he's got a, a lengthy argument as to why it has to be God, which I won't go into now. But he, he doesn't just pluck God out of nowhere. Therefore, given inanimate objects behave in a regular law-like way, unless they're directed towards their end, there must be God. And this God exists. So I'll, I'll just read it out again and you can kind of read what I've said back into it. Fifth way is taken from the governance of the world. We see that things which lack intelligence, such as natural bodies, act for an end. And this is evident from the acting always or nearly always in the same way, so as to obtain the best result. Hence it is plain that not fortuitously, but designedly, do they achieve their ends. And whatever lacks intelligence cannot move toward an end unless it be directed by some being endowed with knowledge and intelligence as the arrow shot to its mark by the archer. Therefore, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end, and this being we call God. Okay. I appreciate the fact there was a lot of technical terms there and I went through that really quickly. During the q and I'm happy to, to revisit it, but I'll now look at a, a more modern version that isn't grounded so much in the metaphysics that will get that same basic idea. So I think it will give you the, the gist and, and hopefully will, will bring greater clarity if you, if you struggle to follow that. Hopefully you, you've got the gist at least, but help I think. So the more modern version is by a philosopher called Richard Swinburne. He's now, I think he's in his 80s now, um, so he's not as active as he used to be, but he is one of the big hitters in British philosophy, making sort of uh, philosophy of religion much more intellectually respectable than it was in the mid 20th century. It was very atheistic, the philosophical world in the 20th century, and Richard Swinburne, shall we say, fought the good fight in order to try and... <laughs> he did a lot. Yeah. You, hear that? you hear that a lot, do you? <laughs> Um, if you're interested, he converted from Anglicanism to the Eastern Orthodox Church in 1995. And he's developed what he calls a teleological argument from the temporal order of the world. Again, I'll read it out and then I'll break it down to you. Regularities of succession are all pervasive. For simple laws govern almost all successions of events. In books of physics, chemistry and biology, we can learn how almost everything in the world behaves. Their laws of their behavior can be set out by a relatively simple formula, which men, sorry, I've got a typo there, which men can understand and by means of which they can successfully predict the future. Orderliness of nature, to which I draw attention here, is its conformity to formula, to simple, formulable scientific laws. The orderliness of the universe in this respect is a very striking fact about it. The universe might so naturally have been chaotic, but it is not. It is very orderly. 
In Swinburne's view, this orderliness requires an explanation. And uh, to clarify that by the orderliness, he's, he's observing that, for example, water consistently boils at 100 degrees centigrade at sea level and freezes at zero degrees centigrade, that things of mass consistently attract, aka that gravity works, and so on and so forth. It's, it's the fact that science and physics do what they do. And that, that I think, is undeniable. And he believes that there are two kinds of explanation for this orderliness. The first are scientific explanations in terms of scientific laws. And the second are personal explanations in terms of the free conscious choices of people. Uh, again, if, if I was teaching this live, I'd, I'd ask for some examples. But examples of a scientific explanation, you know, why did uh, the apple hit Newton on the head? Because gravity attracted the apple to the earth and caused it hit his head something like that. Why did the light turn on? Because the flip, uh, the, the switch was flipped, which completed a circuit which caused electrons to flow around the system, which heated up the filament, which caused the light bulb to turn on. Something like that. You know, leave it to the scientists to fill in the details. Personal explanation would be something like, you know, why did the apple hit uh, Newton on the head? Because he chose to sit under a tree. Why did the light turn on? Because I came into the room and I couldn't see very well, so I decided to turn on the light. So the two sorts of explanation are not competing with each other, they're sitting alongside each other. According to Swinburne, ultimately there can be no scientific explanation of the universe's temporal order, its regularity, because in scientific explanation we explain particular phenomena as brought about by prior phenomena in accord with scientific laws, or we explain the operation of scientific laws and perhaps also particular phenomena. Yet from the very nature of science, it cannot explain the highest level laws of all, for they are that by which it explains all other phenomena. So put simply, whilst lower level scientific laws can be explained by appealing to higher level scientific laws, the highest level scientific laws, whatever they may be, and we may not know those yet, they cannot be explained by appealing to higher level scientific laws. Why? Because they are the highest level. Therefore, the only remaining sort of explanation is the personal explanation. And from this, it follows that there must be a personal explanation for the regularity we see in the universe. And therefore, there must be a person to explain it. This person must be non-physical, otherwise scientific laws would apply to them and the problem would rear its head again, and immensely powerful person is explaining all the regularity in the whole universe, which is pretty big. And so there must be a god or a godlike being. And that brings Swinburne's argument to a close. Was that reasonably clear? Yeah, I think that was great. Um, it's a very interesting okay. argument. Um, I know you have a conclusion side. Do you want to go through that or do you want to kind yeah, of go I'll just questions? I'll just sum up and then I'll stop sharing screen and we can have some we can around sure. the ideas a little bit. <sighs> so I often find it helps to, to see what we've done so you can see how it all fits together. So I point out that there are two sorts of teleological or design arguments. First, there are arguments based on purpose. They have their origin in Paley's argument. Evolution poses problems for Paley, but there are two modern versions that perhaps are some way towards getting around those, those problems. But the neglected other strategy is arguments based on regularity historical 
version of this was Aquinas's fifth way, which I do think is worth investigating. It might require a little bit more work because you'll need to familiarize yourself with Aristotelian metaphysics and so on and so forth. But I do think it really gets you to God as classically understood by Christians, Muslims, Jews, and so on and so forth. But perhaps as a slightly simpler version, a little bit easier to get your head around, the Swinburne's version, which doesn't require any uh, background knowledge of Aristotelian metaphysics. Mm. Just stop sharing. Awesome. Splendid. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Thank you for um, walking through that and preparing those slides. It helped a lot. Um, so what I'll do is, is I'll bring forth kind of like a question I had, and then we'll get to some live questions and things like that. And we'll just kind of go with um, answering objections and questions for the next 20 minutes or so. Uh, but one thing I thought of um, is you were kind of going through your slides and such is as your argument, it's establishing like we have this like regularity um, in the universe, like at the fundamental laws of physics or, or whatever, like whatever that may be. Um, and I think one question may be like, I think skeptics could push back and say, what if these laws are like brute in a sense, or they're just necessary? Um, I could think of like, you know, Graham Oppie's a big fan of like having these like necessary facts at the foundation. Like we'd say, I think you would agree that like the laws of logic are in a sense necessary. So like, couldn't there be like a fundamental like law or something that would be necessary that would kind of cancel out the need for like a, a personal explanation on um, this teleological argument? Yeah. So, so I think that that uh, is, is a sense I was thinking of like, the other day and I finished preparing the slides and I was mulling over what, what might, you know, they, they throw at me and I was, mm -hmm. and what are the standards sort of things. That's one, um, thought that occurred to me and i think there's a sense in which that is a valid response um and it's also a valid response to contingency arguments for the existence of god maybe the universe just is and there's a sense in which per se that's that's a coherent way of viewing it the the cost of that view is it means that ultimately certain things are inexplicable mm -hmm. there is no there is no answer and you have to abandon what's called the principle of sufficient reason, which suggests that for any event, state of affairs, fact, there must be an explanation to explain it. There must be a sufficient reason. Mm -hmm. And once you start postulating brute facts, then ultimately you've rejected the principle of sufficient reason. And if you're prepared to do that, then that's fine. But don't underestimate the cost of doing that. Once you tuck out the principle of sufficient reason, then your warrant for expecting the universe to be understandable, to be amenable to science, and thus your warrant for doing science, your warrant for assuming that the world will behave in a regular way and that there are explanations for things, that goes out the window. And I think you're then left with quite an extreme form of skepticism where you can't really know anything. And I think that's fine. I think skepticism is like full-blown skepticism where you really do reject for example, the claim that you know the sun will come up tomorrow mm -hmm. is coherent, um, or it's a coherent worldview. I think for me, though, I do know that the sun must come up tomorrow. How do I know that? Well, there must be an explanation. If there's an explanation, then that looks like I'm affirming the principle of sufficient reason, and thus you can't simply assert that these things are brute facts. I, I do have a sort of grudging respect for the, but in the modern sense of the word, the modern sense of the word skeptic it means something different. The ancient mm -hmm. Greek skeptics thought that you could know nothing. They didn't mm -hmm. even know whether the sun would come up tomorrow, whether water would quench their thirst. They were just—they didn't know anything, and they really embraced that and tried to 
live out those values. And I, I have a sort of respect for that. But I do think that that's the cost if you reject the principle of sufficient reason. Mm. And that's how you could, yes, assert that these are just brute facts. Yeah, great. Um, we'll go to some live questions here. Um, writer John Buck had a super chat saying St. Thomas is the GOAT. Um, so thank you for that. Um, Thomas Gwyn is definitely a great guy. And he also has a question that came in the form of a super chat. So thank you so much for that. Um, really appreciate your support. He says, would panpsychism, um, that's just being consciousness is a fundamental feature of the world, be sufficient? Uh, be a sufficient naturalistic explanation of goal-directedness in nature? So what are your thoughts, Richard? Um, so Panpsychism is a fun when I first learned about it. So panpsychism is the view that the fundamental building blocks of the universe are uh, phenomenological states. Mm -hmm. uh, now, those might be sort of uh, proto-mental states as opposed to full, fully-fledged ones. So it might not be, for example, that anger and pain and pleasure and happiness are the building blocks of the universe. It might be the building blocks of those higher order uh, mental states. But basically, the idea is that there's this sort of phenomenological mental character written into the very sort of fabric of, of the universe. In terms of would that be a sufficient explanation, I think potentially. But you're going to have to say that not only are phenomenological mental states part of the fabric of the universe, but also that what are called intentional states are part of the fabric of the universe, i.e. aboutness and so on and so forth. Um, and so an example of a human intentional state is I can think about the weather and that might make me feel at the qualitative state, happy or sad. There's the qualitative component and the intentional component. The intentional component is the whole directedness component. I think if you expanded your account of panpsychism to include intentional states, so you have goal directedness built into it, then yeah, then you could get your sort of goal directedness uh, in nature. Ultimately, I think you'd still then be left with a sort of, well, why is the universe built like this? You know, it's goal directedness built into nature. Now that's then more perhaps, and again, you'd either have to reject that and just claim it's a brute fact, in which case I'd have built what I said earlier, or you'd have to give some other form of explanation. There we are more in the realm of um, perhaps a cosmological argument for why why does it exist? Why does it exist like this? Um, so the short answer is I'm is I'm open to the possibility that that might uh, work. The other thing I would say is that that's a big commitment to avoid. You know, if, 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 if it's a teleological argument for the existence of God or panpsychism, I'm going to have to pick, I'll pick God over panpsychism. Because you really do end up having to say that everything, to some extent, feels, that the universe itself feels, and that it's you know, got these, these mental states. And for most people, that's simply too much, too big of an ask. And potentially, it also risks drifting you in towards some form of pantheism and things like that. So... I have got a soft spot for panpsychism. Now, if I wasn't a theist, would I would I flirt with panpsychism? Yes, yeah, definitely on my sort of B list. If I had some form of crisis of faith and I decided to go back to the drawing board, would I would panpsychism be up there? Yeah, I, I'm happy to flirt with it. It must be said, most philosophers have no time for panpsychism. 
Um, I think they're a bit unfair on it. I'm, I'm, I like to stick up for them a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, the hard problem of consciousness is pretty hard. So if, if you're not a theist, I don't, I don't blame you for uh, considering psychism. <laughs> um, another question here from Ethan Silva, which says, uh, so where can I find out how Aquinas draws out God from the fifth way, whether it be in his works or not? Uh, thank you for your question. Yeah, excellent question. So if you want to read Aquinas' work, then uh, the Summa Theologica, and it's in the articles following those ones. Um, and you can find the Summa Theologica online with these as free PDFs available. It must be said, jumping straight into the Summa, I suspect will be a real challenge. I would recommend looking up, I will, I'll just, hold me one second, I'll get the book so I can show it onto the camera. The, the book introduced me to Aquinas. I just don't get it. Sounds good. Um, and we'll get to more questions here. If you guys have questions or pushback uh, for Richard as he goes and gets this book, we have about 10 minutes left. Um, so feel free to push back and have questions. There's a lot of fun stuff here as we look at these arguments uh, and talk about Aquinas. So Aquinas by Edward Fesser. Ed Fesser, a very good Catholic uh, philosopher, but you don't have to be Catholic to, to benefit from him. Um, and that's a really nice introduction. I'd say start with that and it will give you the gist and um, and then have a read of the Summa with what you've learned from that book in mind. So yeah, I would, I would I'd start with Ed Fesser's Aquinas. Awesome. Um, another question here from Spartan Theology, which says, could the multiverse be an explanation of all this? And it just so happens we are in a universe with these features. So the multiverse uh, nation or multiverse so theory, I, I think, is a good uh, response to the cosmic fine-tuning argument. Potentially, the multiverse itself would require fine-tuning. Maybe it only pushes the problem back one stage, and as that's sort of where my knowledge begins to peter out of that particular argument. But I'm, you know, I'm I'm interested in uh, reading that in terms of uh, the, the second argument based on regularity. I don't think the multiverse uh, is that sort of hypothesis. The multiverse suggests that our universe is part of a bigger multiverse, which is itself law governed of regularity, and that it's just one universe amongst many with varying different qualities and features and settings for all the different values. But the multiverse itself would require regularity and, and law-like behaviors, and so Again, all you've all you've done is gone back one level by appealing to you've explained the highest level scientific laws in this universe by appealing to higher level scientific laws in the multiverse. Great, but Swinburne's point is at some stage you'll arrive at the highest level, and then you're going to need to have an explanation for those if you principle sufficient reason. And therefore you're going to need to have some form of personal explanation. So no, I don't I don't think that's gonna work. I think that will just push back the problem one stage. Awesome. Um, one kind of very common objection that I'd love to bring up with you um, just to design our agreements in general is like, just who designed the designer? Uh, I think it was Richard Dawkins that's made this objection really popular. So when someone brings this forth, like, how do you respond to this objection? So there's, there's two responses. Um, the first is a cheeky response, but it's worth bearing in mind. So you get this, this, this sort of criticism to your scale, you know, who created the creator, the cosmological mm -hmm. argument. Technically, you could respond by saying, I don't know, and it doesn't matter. Mm. 
oh, that the universe was designed and that it was designed by God. And you could allow that God himself is designed, but that's a separate question. Mm -hmm. it doesn't, the fact that God now requires a designer doesn't negate your previous argument or the requirement of the universe to be designed by God. So the example I give, I've now got a son. Okay, so you could ask who is Isaac's father? Ah, oh, well, it's, it's Richard, okay. Well, who is Richard's father? I mean, it doesn't change the fact that Isaac's father is me. Our father doesn't mean that I can't be his father and that, that can't be a suitable explanation for at least some of his existence. Um, so this, so one response is that it doesn't matter, but I can see what the atheist is driving at. What they're driving at is if presumably God doesn't require a designer and therefore why can't the universe require a designer and so on and so forth. And so the, the short answer to that is the universe is a contingent entity which has these various features that require an explanation, such as old directedness and so on and so forth. And therefore it requires uh, a designer or a creator or something like that. And then God himself is postulated as a necessary being who, who does not, in a sense, have those Features, or at least not in the same way, to have an explanation designed or anything like that. Um, and again, Aquinas does a really good job of explaining why this is the case. God, for example, according to Aquinas, it's not that God has existence, it's that God is existence. God exists out of his own necessity. And so God could no more be designed or created. Having some IT issues. Yeah, I, I think my internet's starting to get a little choppy. So what I'll do is I will turn my camera off. Um, hopefully this helps for the last few minutes. Can you hear me okay? Oh, no. Um, I was wondering if the issue's on my end. I can hear you all right now. Okay, I think the issue is actually on your end because I'm looking at the live broadcast. Um, so you might be a little frozen there for a oh, second. Okay. And it's funny because I always just assume my it's apologies. me because I'm out here in the bush. but. I don't know. I my apologies. I don't know what's going on, uh, but we're kind of here towards the end. Um, I'd love for you. I love this argument just because it it gets around a lot of the, like common objections. I think to um, teleological arguments. Like I sent you that list of objections, and I was looking at them just like right now, and I'm like a lot of these that I think can kind of get surpassed with this kind of Thomistic teleological argument. So. My last thing for you is just you, if there's any kind of like last thoughts you want to bring up and then just kind of like people want to like follow your work and stuff. I know you have a YouTube channel, um, the philosopher's cave, I believe it is. Uh, so lots of great stuff there. So feel free to like give any like things you didn't get to say and bring those up and how people can follow you, Richard. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, no, I think we are we are beginning to have some issues. It's to be fair, I am at the top of the house and it's coming up on uh, about four o'clock over here. So I'm guessing that lots of people are beginning to log on to the internet. So that could be why. So I will just sum up very quickly. Uh, overall thoughts. There are these, there's this whole teleological and design arguments are neglected. And if you're an apologist or a Christian or a Christian philosopher or, or a Muslim or Jewish philosopher, then these are worth understanding and having at your disposal. Um, and if you're uh, an atheist, then you, know, you need to be familiar with arguments and to not confuse them with 
a different style of argument and think of a response. Um, so that's the sort of summary of this uh, talk. Uh, in terms of following me, yes, I have my own YouTube channel. It's very small, uh, but I'm hoping to grow it. Um, Dave and Zach, maybe will you include a link to that at, at some stage at the bottom of this video? It is um, at the bottom right now, so everyone can and then subscribe got... on their way out. Ah, oh, well, please, please do. It's really, it's really flattering when I when I get subscribers. I'm hoping to get to a hundred. That's my next. I'm on ninety three before we start this conversation. So if I can get to a hundred, that'd be amazing. Um, and then you can also follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter, which is at, at the Philoso Cave. But again, well, they're all interlinked. You can find my YouTube channel, and you can see a link to Twitter. So do uh, follow me on there and. I, I'm not, I wouldn't view myself per se as an apologist, more Christian philosopher, so I have a side interest in apologetics. So there'll be a mixture of different resources and topics on there. Some of them apologetics focused, some of them on Eastern philosophy. Um, so yeah, yeah, do follow me and, and you know get in contact. Let me know if there's anything you want me to to do some work on. Yeah. So um, thank you so much, Richard, for joining me. I really appreciate um, your time putting together those slides. They're very helpful. And if you're listening like through the podcast, I encourage you to check out the YouTube show and you can like look through those slides and see what's going on here. Uh, but thank you so much for joining me, Richard. Uh, I encourage everyone to subscribe to the Philosopher's Cave on the way out. We can get Richard to 100 subscribers, at, I believe. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. Um, if you enjoyed hearing apologetics, as always, we're brought to you by you with your support. Um, you can support us on Patreon for as little as one, two, three dollars or euros a month, depending on or pounds, I guess if you're British. Um, so whatever that is, that really helps. But Richard, thank you so much for joining me once again. Thank you for having me. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Have a good one. God bless. <laughs>